You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the Royal Blue Podcast as we look at Gavin Buckland's uh, new book, Boys from the Blue Stuff, which charts Everton's rise to 1980s glory. Gavin, who's Everton's official statistician, has also several previous titles to his name, including the Ultimate Everton Quiz Book, Strange But Blue, and his late and before his latest work, which came just after came out just before Christmas, follows on from his widely acclaimed 2019 publication. Money Can't Buy Us Love, about Everton in the 1960s. That title actually covered the period up to the end of um, Harry Catrick's reign, but the new book follows chronologically on from where the last one left off. Gavin himself, a regular guest on the Royal Blue podcast, joins us, as does David Prentice, um, who won't mind me saying this book covers his formative years. Um, Welcome to you both. Um, Gavin, after Money Can't Buy Us Love, did Chan, the next chapter of Everton's history, seem like the, the natural progression for you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Um, the problem with the book was not where to start, it was where to finish, really. Um, <laughs> did it take it up to 87? This would, would yeah. appear to be the, the natural one with Howard going. Um, and so you've got one book finishing Cata going, one finishing Howard going. But... Um, a couple of things got in the way there at the side of the book. Uh, yeah. hey, there's a nice coincidence that links links the start of the story to the, the end of the story in May 73, May, May 85. Uh, and also, it also means uh, thinking of a third volume. Leave us one in more, start, yeah. Start, yeah, yeah. Start, starting off with it. You know, it's like a boom busting, Chris. We start off yeah. in the 60s, not one anything, we end it. We, we win stuff, and then we, we, we're obviously struggling in 73, ends on, ends on a downer. This one starts on the downer, ends up in a, in a triumph. So the next book will start off with a triumph. And the only problem is, which down did you want to end up on, really? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you, could, you could end it up in 84, I'm not, uh, 94, I don't know, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. You know, I'm here to plug this one, not the next one, you know. Yeah, and uh, Dave, you you just finished reading it, and uh, you, it's kept you thoroughly entertained throughout the Christmas and New Year period. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, uh, I knew I was going to enjoy this one because I enjoyed the sixties one enormously, and that was an era I didn't know a great deal about, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So that was almost like uh, a voyage of discovery uh, going through that one. This one, I thought I knew all about the nineteen seventies. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned. The first game was on Easter Monday, 1975, uh, against Coventry, when we won to go top of the league with only a handful of games left and still managed to blow it. Um, and, you know, I had my first season ticket, like, the following season. So I thought I knew all about the ins and outs of, like, the 1970s, but I was only looking at it from a supporter's perspective. Mm. And Gav's done with this what he did so well with his last one, and he's gone into the absolute minutiae of, uh, of Everson using newspaper, contemporary newspaper reports, uh, players' autobiographies. I'm guessing you've actually sat and watched quite a lot of these games on YouTube as well. I mean, I was, uh, I was you know, sort of gleaning that from some of them. And so there's yeah. loads of stuff in there that you just don't know. I mean, um, I'm looking at, you know, saw the Billy Bingham appointment in 1973. And, you know, for, you know correct me if I'm wrong, he's like fourth or fifth choice. He'd, uh, yeah. he'd interviewed Don Revy, he'd interviewed Jimmy Armfield, um he'd offered the job to Bobby Robson famously and you've got into exactly you know so why that fell down and uh the, the one that like really amazed me was Enzo Beatsos the famous Italian manager actually put forward his own yeah. claims for the job and that, that was never going to happen so there's this nuggets galore in it that you just like completely unexpected and I particularly like the little uh you know sort of notes at the bottom of uh, every other page that you know so you know it 
illuminating you, so elucidate some of the uh, you know the, the uh, points that you've made on particular pages, and give you like little tidbits, you know, so lower down. We won't get ahead of ourselves, but well, some of them, you know, so absolutely tremendous, notably Doug Davis's, but we'll come to that no doubt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Gav, I think obviously um, lived through that period yourself, and now going to revisit it in the book. I mean, did it almost seem different now looking back? I mean, I mean, staggering how unpopular Everton were in that era uh, from basically outside their own supporter base. Well, that's where it is a continuation of the 60s book, Chris, and that was very much yeah. the theme of it. Um, the 60s started obviously with the Moors money and, you know, I, I do the comparison with Chelsea when Abramovich came in that uh, Chelsea were enormously unpopular. Uh, Everton were un, un, unpopular in the early 60s for similar reasons and, and, and other, other reasons, you know, with regard and how they dealt with the press and sort of dismissing the press and so on. So the 70s has really carries off in that same vein, really. Um, that, like I said, that was just the reason why the points of Bingham was one of the reasons for that. On the, on the, on one of the first rules of football is every management appointment tends to be the opposite of the one that's gone before. Yeah. And Bingham was seen as being not necessarily the best qualified management-wise in terms of experience and you know, managing big clubs, but he was good with the press. He a good PR. He had that Irish charm, and that was seen as a you know a, a uh, you know a lighter contrast to the the dark darkness of the Catholic years and something in that aspect. Um, so, but that 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 only did it to a certain degree. The club was still very much caught up, I think, in the seventies in in the sort of. Um, patriarchal way of dealing with players and, and, and supporters being still had a very haughty reputation um as being very old school um and that 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 started in the 60s but starting in the 50s probably and, and we're still there in in the 70s and what one of the key things that i, I talk about at length is it's treatment the club's treatment of players in the mid 70s mm. and their and their wages and stuff and how the club really could have done more to help the players out and, and, and didn't. And I think it was a way, times of 20% inflation, the club wouldn't give pay rises. You know? yeah. um, and it was a way, I think, of putting players in the place and showing where the power was in the club. And that caused a lot of dissatisfaction. You know, and Plano's favourite, Bob Latchford, that there were a whole, whole chapter on Bob's sort of very, very fraught relationship with the club for somebody who was a, an Everton legend. Um, he spent a significant time at Goodison wanting to leave, you know, yeah. and and that was and a large part of that was not really down to Bob. It was down to the way that Bob was really put in his place by by the club, and and that was um, that that was sort of uh, personified the way the club dealt with players, and that, and that's very much a continuation of the theme from the the sixties book, where there was a, a very similar uh, treatment of, of players then. And um, yeah, that, 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 there's whole there's another chapter around the way the board, like sort of, you know, looked at you know cheese players and how they were regarded within football and their, their attitudes to the wider game, which is quite instructive of of um, of the years that followed. You know, in stark contact to say some of the Carter the Carter years, you know. Yeah, I mean, Dave, you've, you've mentioned it. It's almost like um, you felt you knew the era, but you're going back in there and you're learning new stuff all the time. I mean, some great nuggets in there. You mentioned to me earlier um, the time when Everton were briefly favourites to, to sign Kenny Dalgleish and then people like Di Davis admitting he was glad they didn't win the title in 75. Yeah, the, the Dalgleish one you know, completely took me by surprise. Uh, I think that was when uh, he put in a transfer request at Celtic in 1975 and uh, Billy Bingham decided that uh, the, the squad that he had was strong enough. Uh, it just failed to win the league in 1975 and it didn't need that much strengthening he thought uh, for the 75-76 campaign and so chose not to make a bid for Kenny Dalglish oh my god you know so how could history have been differently if he'd have yeah. thought differently and there's a few like that I mean Trevor Francis is another one as well that you know so he was he was linked with at the time Peter Shilton obviously uh, and it just never came to fruition I know it's easy to, to look back in hindsight and you know so say that you know so how could things have been so much different but yeah the Di Davis one that you mentioned uh, I loved because um, like I said Gav's like sort of taken so much research material from so many different places 
And this was um, one from a uh, Dag Davis's 1986 autobiography, which completely passed me by. I've, uh, I've never picked up this title. And um, he talks about missing out on the league in uh, 1975, which he probably had some part to play in as well, given some of his performances that I witnessed. But um, he says, I was secretly glad that Billy Bingham didn't receive the accolade win in the First Division Championship. From my knowledge of him, he was not a man who deserved that honour. He was a selfish man who had thought of anything except how to promote himself. He's not particularly talented either. I just loved that. Absolutely brutal. And then I remember the 5 0 hammering at Newcastle in, uh, in 1975. That you know, awful performance that Michael Charters in the Echo absolutely demolished, you know, so saying how poor it was. And uh, again, one from complete left field, Di Davis uh, later revealed. The real truth was I was paying the price for a piece of pure foolishness by two members of the team the previous night. In their immense wisdom, a midfield player and a defender managed to consume a full bottle of whiskey and a bottle of brandy between them. Because of their complete lack of effectiveness, I was completely defenceless. Yep, I can understand that. Happily, he doesn't name either midfield player, and uh, we can draw our own conclusions to that one. But it's just great, you know, so it makes, makes you smile despite the bleakness of the subject matter. <laughs> so really good stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, on that, that issue, I mean, and I think it's, talk a little bit to that there was a, an approach made to Barcelona in 1976 to buy Johan Cruyff you know um, oh, which was which was quite interesting um, and and the the sort of deal fell through that Cruyff was part of the deal wanted the course of a million up front and um, also the, the, the tax laws in this country are far more punitive than than, um, than than in Spain and uh, that was another deal that, that hit the buffers and yeah, it, it it is they're great. I mean, that's one of the things about writing the book books like this is is you have these enormous number of oh what happened if yeah. that has happened and you know and well some of them are hugely symbolic. I know we're probably getting slightly ahead of our think you know, in terms of the timeline, but the, the, the you know seventy nine you know leads on Francis whatever Francis this is obviously first million pound player, but Lee had done a deal with Birmingham, um, which was to basically make it was cash plus an unknown player, which I say in the book is almost certainly Colin Todd, who eventually went to Birmingham. He'd done a deal which would have made Everton the first million pounds, you know, first million pounds a uh, club by player. And Philip Carter wouldn't give him the money. Um, and, and that's sort of, I, I use that in the book as symbolizing how the club. I'd gone from the Maisie millionaires of the 60s where money was no option to all of a sudden. You know, while Liverpool were buying Sunas and Daglish for British record fees, we could have trumped that, but we chose not to. Yeah. And it, it showed, that, that sort of symbolised the clubs. Two, well, two things. Um, the, the club sort of, uh, you know, lost the reputation of the Maisie millionaires, shall we say, still a big club. And also as well, Carter's mistrust of, of Lee. And also Car- Carter's stewardship of the club. Um, he was very keen on ensuring that the, the, the board never jeopardised the, the future of the club. And but, you know, some supporters criticised that quite rightly. And there's a, a big discussion about that in the book about the board in the 70s and stuff, how, how their attitude was, was not necessarily popular with fans. Not that you would ever happen in the modern era, of course, but you know, it just it, and, and that that's the that's the underlying thing. And Penno would Penno will tell you this, and I pointed this out in the sixth book, is a lot of the stuff we talk about week in, week out in the Royal Blue podcast, it's not new. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, not, just, it's not yeah. we could have we could have done a podcast in the late seventies <laughs> or early mid seventies or even the late sixties, and you would be talking by and large around the same issues of what we talk about now. You've only got to read the letters in the in the, the letters in the football echo, which I quote quite a bit because they're such a great, yeah. you know, litmus test of of supporters' views. It is like watching a more, dare I say, more educated, um, yeah, you know, you know, view of Twitter. You know, it's just it's just it's just as I say, it's a more um, conservative, probably, uh, you know, views. But it's just social, you know, the, the football yeah. echoes letters pages, Penna well known. It, it, it's just it's just brilliant as well as, as capturing the zeitgeist at the time, you know. And I quote them quite a bit because they they're really important. 
Uh, and there's a good book there, by the way, I think. The football, <laughs> yeah. uh, football Echo Lessons page, history of. Um, yeah, and, and so it's not new, Chris, but some of the yeah. stuff that's on my head, it's not new. It's what happens today. It's what happened in the last 20 years, you know, and, and it, things just, you do, you know, you, you do get that sense of just history constantly repeating itself. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I mean, we'll, we'll move on to, to, to Kendall and uh, Carter and that dynamic as, 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 we, as we talk later on. But, I mean, we've still got the rest of this, the 70s to cover, Dave. Um, um, obviously, the 60s seen as a glorious era for Everton and the 80s. But is it perhaps a, like a sweeping generalisation just to sort of to, to write off the 70s beyond 69-70 season as just a, a series of, of failures? Because we've talked about the near misses in 75, albeit, um, you know, very, very unpopular. And then, obviously... Gordon Lee came in, and the, you know they, they, they were, there, was, there was almost a trophy there. The League Cup going to a, a third game for the, for the, I think, the only time in the competition's history. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, reading a book like this causes you to question yourself sometimes, and you know, sort mm-hmm. of think of your, you know, analysis of certain eras. And you know, as a young fan at the time, you know, so I was, I was, was in seventy-five, like 12, 13. Yeah, so you, you automatically think that you've been hard done by and you've been unlucky so many times. And we were only massively hard done by on one occasion, really, throughout that decade. And that was, I'm not even going to mention his name. And, you know, so Gavin devotes an entire chapter to that, which I had to read painfully. <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm not going to mention him. But, yeah, he, he robbed us, robbed us pure and simple on that occasion because of his ego and because of his arrogance. Um, so, yeah, massively unlucky on that occasion. But as Gavin quite rightly says, what about the replay? You know, so why weren't they good enough to repeat that level of performance? You know, so in the replay, and um, quite simply, they weren't. And, uh, and likewise, I always thought, you know, we were quite unfortunate. You know, seventy-seven, seventy-eight, which are a lot of Blues fans of my vintage, you know, favorite one of their favorite seasons uh, because we scored seventy-six league goals that season, the highest scorers in the division, played some wonderful attacking football. Uh, you know, so five one wins at QPR and at Leicester and six nils at home to Coventry, but it was a flawed. You know, Nottingham Forest were outstanding that uh, in that era, and we weren't quite good enough to match them uh, because you know. So we had just little flaws here and there. I mean, failure to find you know, sort a proper strike partner for Bob Latchford being one of them, and uh, you know, so Duncan McKenzie was tried, Mickey Walsh, you know, so infamously was tried, and so you look back and you think that yeah, maybe we weren't as unlucky as you thought. And then again, you know, so that wonderful opportunity we were given in the 1979-80 uh, FA Cup, you know, so playing West Ham, a second division team, you know, so in the uh, in the semi-final. In an era when the second division, you know, the boundaries between the top flights and second division were much closer than they are now. I mean, West Ham went on to win the cup that year, you know, with a side of players like Trevor Brooking and Alan Devonshire and Billy Bonds, you know, great players. Uh, but again, we let ourselves down, you know, on the big occasion, Brian Kidd getting himself stupidly sent off and, you know, so just flaws here and there, you know, so in the team. So you look back and you think that, you know, maybe we weren't as unfortunate, you know, so as you thought we were, and, you know, the seventies, you know, so it was a pretty disappointing era given what preceded it and what followed it. And uh, we'll go on to it even further, but I think what, what really actually, you know, so I opened my eyes, it's how horribly bleak things became, you know, so in the, well, just prior to the glory days, you know, so 1983, 1982, 1983, what a fairly, you know, so tumultuous era that was. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. You know, the, the 1970s, you know, maybe, you know, they, they were quite a bleak period. And maybe we weren't quite as unfortunate as, you know, so my teenage self thought we were. Gav, did, did writing the book make you reassess? Um, you, uh, what you thought of both um, Bingham and, and Lee? I mean, how do you end up coming out of it over those two? Uh, I, I think um, I think the one thing that you got was both were out of the depth. Yeah, both managers were quite clearly out of the depth, and you know, likewise with Bingham, uh, 
Lee was probably fourth choice um, for the job. You know, it's, it's the same candidates reappeared in '77 as they did in in '73. Uh, with the with the, 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 the we, had, we also had this odd application of Harry Catsick and Dave Clements, former player who fancied themselves as a as a management duo at Everton, and uh, that that wonderful kickoff um, episode that's on on YouTube, Dave, where uh, Catsick's talking about the vacancy. At Everton, he's going on about they need so they need a man who knows the club who's experienced and stuff. You who know, could that like, be? Yeah. Like, who could that be? You know, mm. I think Harry Harry fancied himself, and and Gento Berzo one was a really strange one that came out of left field. Obviously, five years later, managed the World Cup winners. You know, I tried to find out a little bit more about it, but yeah. it, it sort of got lost. There would have been a lot of red tape, but he was definitely interested in it. If he'd offered the job, he would have taken it. Absolutely. Um, well, because of the way it was with foreign foreign players and managing football at the time, it probably wasn't wasn't possible. Twelve months later, it might have been ironically enough. Yeah. Um, so Bingham Malay, I was that. It's a bit like what Penno says there. There's some. You look at it and say, well, oh, this man had a sort of hard look. Oh, we'd have bought Chelsea. We would have won the title and all this. But when you leave at the close, you no chance. I'd say, and this is probably a little bit harsh, but I think it's true that. Um, like that 80 West Ham game is a classic one, the semi-final at Ellen Road, you know, and we, the Frank Lampard sort of fluke yeah. header that sort of did a sort of 90 degree angle, 90 degree turn, then at the last minute to bend inside the post. Unlucky Everton, you know, Frank Lampard scores, 170 Preston Guild, you know, and he pops up. But I say in the book, that is all down to manage's attitudes because since half that night, we had Kevin Ratcliffe playing uh, with McLean's. Kevin Ratcliffe's second game for Everton. So it was a new centre of our partnership. Yeah. And Lampard is standing between the two. Both don't, don't pick him up. And the reason that happens is, is Gordon Lee wanted to stop Alan Devonshire playing. He's played wide left. So John Gidman was our normal right back. For the replay, he pushed Gidman into the right, right midfield, which necessitated Billy Wright, who was normally... Lions' his partner going to right back and having to bring uh, Kevin Ratcliffe in for the second game. And that's why Lampard scores. So, and, that, and that's the difference between managers who win stuff and managers don't. Gordon is too busy trying to stop a second division player, albeit a very good one, playing when we're favourites, you know, disrupting our defence. But what are West Ham doing with their right back? He pops up in the last minute of extra time in our area to score. And that's the, ultimately the difference between managers who win trophies who don't. Gordon too cautious, too conscious yeah. of the opposition at all times. Uh, I say in the book, you know, he was unlucky, Gordon, that he was always the Everton manager most affected by Liverpool's success. He often spoken about it. It, it sort of haunted him. Uh, yeah. there's, there's a great quote in, in, in the book from Brian Clough, isn't it, Preno, about uh, Gordon, G, Gordon Lee must have the worst job in football. <laughs> you know, who'd want to be the manager, like, you know, where Liverpool got Liverpool across Stanley Park. And where mm. Gordon was unlucky, and this is why he got stick off fans was up until 77 at a talk in the book that Liverpool and Everton, even when Liverpool win the stuff in the mid 70s, it was always felt as part of the natural cycle of football that some years they'd be successful, some years, you know, we will be. Yeah. 77, it's when Liverpool start winning European Cups. That's when the big chasm between uh, under Lee's yeah. uh, time, that's when the big chasm financially. And on the playing side appear and you know and that's why gordon <laughs> had to happen under his watch you know he was quite quite unlucky really uh and and that he was really affected by liverpool um and, and that was sometimes reflected in what what he said he's always very complimentary about him liverpool no wonder we had a mental block on occasions because we got the sun we're playing the best team in Europe today lads you know yeah uh, but he did he did provide moments of 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 as I say, 77-78, I talked to a lot of people from that era, you know, we were going, still their favourite season, even ahead of the mid-80s, you know, Bob Latchford, 30 goals, you know, so even within the darkness of 77-78, there was a lot of light moments, but Gordon, he he sort of, he felt the pressure, and he wasn't great with pressure, he, he started then hit, picking on the wrong targets and you know, blaming everybody else but himself. 
yeah. to be fair. But he was, a, he was a very decent guy, Gordon. Those people who knew him, and um, he, he was he was just unlucky, I suppose, that it was under his management that Liverpool put this big gap between the two clubs that it took his successor to try and bridge. Yeah. And um, Dave, I mean, we've spoken already about um, Howard Kendall and um, Philip Carter and the, the way that, that obviously that relationship um, blossomed. But, you know, it, it got very difficult before it you actually did turn it around. And uh, perhaps we, by the same token, sort of a reverse to those 70s managers, we, we forget about how bad it was for Howard in those early years. Yeah, it was. I mean, oh, yeah, we've spoken on the, the Royal Blue podcast many times about how Howard was very, very good at ending seasons well. You know, so having had, you know, sort of rocky periods, having a little bit of a flourishes towards the end of the season, you know, which I think elevated us to, was it seventh in his first full season, maybe eighth, you know, the season after. And so, you know, it left you going into the summer in a reasonably optimistic, you know, sort of mood. Um, but there were so many you know, sort of grim, you know, moments in that era. And uh, obviously 82, you know, so with, with the infamous, you know, sort of 5-0 hiding at Goodison, which they still sing about even now. Um, but, you know, what really brought it home to me was like, you know, in, in build-up to it, you know, in the build-up to the absolutely incredibly wonderful 1984 and 85, how bad 83, you know, sort of became at times. Uh, I remember the three 0 defeat at Anfield, you know, when Trevor Stephen was played in a more advanced role, and uh, Ian St John afterwards on ITV described it as men against boys, um, and uh, Joe Fagan admittedly, like a little while afterwards, uh, said that uh, it wasn't really like a proper derby match because it was too easy, uh, you know, yeah. so it lacked excitement. And you're thinking, wow, you know, God, that, that's incredible to have, you know, sort of rival managers saying that about you. And then, uh, you know, the, obviously the pivotal moment was the um, the promotion of Colin Harvey. Uh, and we need to talk later as well about Sir Philip Carter's, you know, sort of faith mm -hmm. in Howard, which comes through so many times. Um, but, you know, I'd forgotten that even after that, we had that 3-0 defeat at Wolves. We were bottom of the league at the time. We'd won one game in 18. And uh, we went and got absolutely battered. And, you know, it was understandable why the supporters at the time were issuing leaflets around the ground, you know, so calling for Ken Lancaster to be removed. Um, you know, why you know, there were protests, you know, sort of against the direction the club was going in. And it's almost miraculous, you know, sort of seeing how it turned around. I mean, it's easy to look back and say the signs were there because, you know, that was in place and that was in place. But at that time, you certainly didn't yeah. see it happening. It was absolutely, you know, sort of bleak as bleak could be. Uh, a time when, you know, sort of crowds were down to 8,000, 9,000. I've been in a number of 8,000 and 9,000 gates, you know, sort of Goodison in that era. And it was, it was uh, quite, a, quite a soulless existence at the time. And for it to suddenly, you know, so, you know, evolve into, into what it did, you know, so, so dramatically, it is, it's almost miraculous. But yeah, you know, so it, amazing that, you know, so Sir Philip Carter saw that, you know, so Howard Kendall did have um, this ability and, you know, this ability to turn things around and stuck with him. Yeah, I mean, Gav would probably be a surprise to a lot of um, certainly younger fans. But I mean, how close was he to the brink in, the, in those early days? Of, um... Oh, very close in AC. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely, AC three. Yeah. Um, I think, I think, you know, you say what you learn, stuff, Chris, and I, yeah, what what you reflect on when you say, you know, saying the book yes again in eighty one. It's not coming. Only said they said Howard was the first choice. I'm not sure that was the case. I think yeah. They could have got. You wanted Bobby Robson again, but there was a, a, a unwritten agreement. Well, a sort of well, a, probably an official agreement that he couldn't coach another club's manager during the season. And because uh, Ipswich were in the UEFA Cup by early May when he wanted to make him a, the appointment, he couldn't couldn't get Robson. Um, but Howard, Howard, um, yeah, Howard had done two seasons at Blackburn. Um, and the, the, what what you learn is is. The challenge there was the two challenges that he had a you know to be the best club in europe you had to be the best club in the city didn't you know yeah. what I mean? just like you know and also the second the second thing is when howard left in 74 as a player he was the best player of the club when he come back in 81 he's probably still the best player of the yeah. club or thereabouts you know he was he was still top back He's, 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 when he come into the team, he still looked top class, but that was just mostly because of the people he had around him. And his 81 signings didn't work out. Um, I say that 
Um, apart from Neville, I'd say Mick Walsh was a decent sign and Jim Arnold was okay. But how how was was Brian Glanville, a great Sunday Times journalist, used to say that. I, I always quote this, said that Howard was a very lucky manager on occasions, and he, he was very lucky in that. In his first season, I mean, even November 81, we're really struggling. We have to be badly beat at Anfield, and the sort of, you know, bottom, you know, bottom six, seven of the table, and you know, it's a dead full run. And, you know, and all the signings haven't worked, and none of the lead players in this inheritance are, are not play are not great and, and stuff. And it didn't look like our Kendall's team, but he had in the reserves. And to be fair, some of them are Gordon's players, which I do give credit to in the book. Gordon's mm. pretty sticky. He did leave Howard because some quite decent players, you know, in, 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 in a, so in 81, you have this, this is where the roots of the success is. In 81, the reserve team at the start of the season, which I've said on the pod several times in the Roblox podcast, don't see Everton reserves 81, 82 at the start. You've got Neville in goal. You've got Gary Stevens playing right back. You've got Mark Higgins, Kevin Ratcliffe. John Bailey was playing left back. You've got Kevin Richardson playing. You've got Graham Sharp playing. Alan Irvin's playing. McMahon's playing. All playing for the reserves. By the January, they're the first team. Yeah. You know, that, this, this ridiculous turnaround that, that had gone on. And so he was lucky. If, if Gordon didn't have that talent, eh, sorry, Power didn't have that talent in the reserves, he could have been really under the cosh far earlier in 83, to be honest with you. Um, because he, 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 his transfer dealings were... I say in the book, he bought players like... Like, if he'd have been Blackburn manager, Preno, when he, if Blackburn had come up in 81, the players he bought in 81 would have been like... He would have bought them from Blackburn, that type of level, you know? So, the, the, in 81, he was struggling. 82, the famous 5-0 defeat at Goodison. I say it's, say it's quite funny, isn't it, that, like... That five hundred feet was the weekends of the last week. There's a joke about Evan and Boyce and the black stuff, isn't it? About you know, your father always give you something to believe, and somebody says caustically, "Well, Evan, <laughs> you know, like you know." And I say, yeah, on the on the week after the five hundred feet, somebody writes to the Echo, "Don't do that." Evan need a mid- midfield general, and then a month later, Peter Reid turns up, and of course, Peter Reid had been coached by Alan Bleasdale, ironically yeah. enough, um, which is like nice little. Tying a few things together, and um, so Howard's Howard's route to eighty three. There are times when he's struggling, eighty one, eighty two, but he got out of that at the end of the season, as Penno says. But in eighty three, you don't think there's that time, do you? You know, there's he's run he's run out of money, he's run out of time. Um, but he actually, he actually yeah. physically handed yeah. him his resignation. Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. And he's, the crowd, run out of, the crowds run out of patience. He went to see Philip. Well, there's two things, isn't there? He yeah. went to see Carter to offer his resignation. Philip said no. And there's that really weird story, isn't it? That Neville says, you know, on the same ground at Belfield and on right before they played Coventry on on New Year's Day, and he runs yeah. up to Neville. He's pleading with him, "Can you give me guarantee yeah. a clean sheet for me tomorrow?" Yeah. <laughs> I never quite there. Why he turns out? I like to love to have seen this. Yeah. Never turns out and says, "Well, I can't quite. I really can't guarantee a clean sheet because good defence and all that." And so Howard runs over to Jim Arnold and says, "Jim, can you guarantee me a clean sheet tomorrow?" So you know, and so Howard's desperate, and, and for all the show yeah. the Viva around the time, and he they still have a few clips with the uh, with the press guys and stuff. He was. You suspect that the stresses and strains of management. We're really, really hitting home to him, you know. And he, he needed a break, didn't he? And he, he as I say, he was lucky uh, on occasions. He went to Stoke famously. And he got, got a result at Oxford when they on the night that he should have should have got beat. And then but he was he, but he was lucky that he had Colin come in as a coach and Colin worked with a lot of players and and then I think a, a lot of how Howard what what Howard was really good at is, is his defence was always sound. You know, at Blackburn, had, you know, he, he nearly got two promotions on the back of scoring one goal a game because defensively he never conceded. And in those three years, Chris, mm-hmm. first three years, the one thing in the set is, oh, oh there's the 5 0 probably. We never struggled defensively. We just couldn't score goals. And in early 84, once we started scoring goals, that's when things turned around. And 
that's why Inchi is such a, an important player for me, Dave, because his goals at the start of '84 started that whole whole process. You know, a lot yeah, of important goals Inchi scored. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We've talked so many times about turning points in that era. And, you know, so quite rightly, you talk about the Coventry City League Cup tie, you know, so in detail, which was certainly one of them. The FA Cup tie at Stoke was, you know, so the league match at Birmingham, you know, so where Howard had said, look, you know, if you don't produce tomorrow, I'm going to make changes. I'm going to have to, like, sort of start, you know, sort of ditching, you know, sort of load of you, basically. Um, but, yeah, you know, Inchi, I mean, obviously, I, I thought Colin Harvey and Andy Gray, you know, were obviously the two, you know, so most pivotal moments, promoting Colin, you know, so from the other reserves, and effectively putting, you know, your assistant manager's nose out of joint in Mick Heaton, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so, but, you know, to do that. So, you know, you mentioned about Howard being lucky, but equally that also showed that his ability to spot maybe, you know, so what the squad needed at that time, more of a, you know, a sergeant major, you know, because Mick Heaton was the good cop. Uh, Colin Harvey was very much the bad cop, you know, so who would, you know, mm-hmm. work players relentlessly on the training pitch, drag them back after training, you know, so if he thought you could improve them. Uh, and he did. That was a massive turning point. Equally, Andy Gray, uh, because of his infectious personality, his quality as a footballer. And uh, I loved that quote in there as well, where Man United were thinking about buying him. And um, Ron Atkinson had said at the time, well, can you guarantee you'll play 35 games for us this season? And uh, the physio said, I can't even guarantee you'll play 15. And uh, ever since yeah. in such you know, so, uh, you know, a, a traumatic situation, Howard was prepared to take that gamble. Even to the point whereby Andy Gray actually got hold of his records. How he managed it. He got hold of his uh, medical records at the time, took one look at them and just thought, oh, dearie me, I'm never going to get a move to a club like Everton if they read this. So he put all the really bad ones on the fire. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. A, a pile significantly shrunk uh, and what it should have been. So, you know, he got the move <laughs> and he had that absolute purple patch. But, you know, yeah. so you, talk about it, you talk about Inchi and you know, he'd been a very, very good midfielder, you know, so probably playing out of position a little bit. He preferred to play there. But in that, you know, sort of advanced role uh, as a partner to Graham Sharp, he was outstanding in that area, absolutely outstanding. I mean, I was there at Oxford United that night, you know, so where, you know, Kevin Brock was pushed into the back pass by Peter Reid. And, you know, it was such a difficult finish on a very, very frosty surface. Uh, and he did. He took it really well and got us a draw we probably didn't need. That's what he didn't deserve. And then, you know, his ability at the start of that 84-85 season, he was the first choice striker, Barnum. Graham yeah. Sharp was on the bench for long periods, you know, so and Andy Gray, you know, so came in and, you know, the other way around, you know, so one would be left out and the other wasn't. Adrian Heath was very, very much the first choice. And um, Andy Gray only really got a sniff when uh, when Adrian Heath got that, you know, well, season-wrecking injury. You could argue he was never quite the same again as a player after that. Uh, but yeah. certainly at the beginning of that season, for me, and this is not an exaggeration, he was as good as a peak level Dalgleish at the start of that season. He was yeah. absolutely outstanding. Uh, you know, Derek Hatton, you know, so asking questions about him on question time, you know, so why are you picking him? He was just absolutely outstanding on fire. And a big tragedy, really, what happened, you know, so with the uh, the injury. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe he was one of the turning points you know, sort of that era as well. Yeah, I always thought it was like, those little things like putting at the bottom plan. I was uh, always, I was, I discovered many years ago that Ke- Kevin Brock, a key person in Everton's history, had actually been a, been at Everton and rejected as a teenager. <laughs> this is um, an irony of sorts, isn't it? You know, but um, yeah, so, so it's perennial, Chris, going back to your different yeah. question. We've got slightly off a tangent, but yeah, Howard was under a hell of a lot of pressure and. It was Inchi's goals at the start of '84 mm-hmm. that I think the major contributor. Yeah, whether inspired or not, like we say, Sir Philip Carter's um, faith in him, the fact that we've got those two stands now at Goodison Park, Howard Kendall Gladys Street, and Sir Philip Carter Park, and um, yeah, it, it, you know, 
directors, chairman, they do get a lot of stick for being uh, trigger happy and uh, you know, hiring and firing and the but you know like I said whether it was inspired or looking back at it and uh, you know with the benefit of hindsight, it was such a a pivotal decision to to keep the faith, and they were both obviously rewarded with that. Yeah, I mean, I think Philip had. Um, I mean, Philip hadn't handled the the the, the um, dismissal of Gordon Lee. Uh, well, I think he he sort of hung Gordon out to dry, mm-hmm. uh, and I think he probably he learned lessons from that as a chairman, um, and. Again, there's an argument to say, well, what good would have Sack and Howard done anyway? But I, I, you know, and I think to be fair to Sir Philip, he meant it. I mean, he went, he went and printed me, um, John Keith, the John Keith and the Daily Express, and, and his famous statement supporting Howard, and 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 I, and I reprint that in full in in the book. It's quite quite illuminating. He's very, very clever man, Philip. He got, he got lauded for that. But at the same time, if you read the words closely, he's also distancing himself from Howard a little bit. <laughs> you know, he's saying yeah. Howard is the manager, and we've supported him, by the way. So, you know, we've covered ourselves at board level. So, if you go, you know, going to give, going to give people stick, it's Howard. We, we've given them loads of money to spend. So, very, very clever man, uh, Sir Philip. And there was more to that statement than what was seen at the time. It wasn't just, I'm supporting my manager. I'm sort of got my deflectors on here, by the way. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, he did. But, you know, as much as it, as much as it seems, you know, right now, at the time, there was people who said, well, should, I remember Everton fans saying, should be, should be gone. We obviously had the leaflets and stuff. And, and credit where credit's due to, to Sir Philip, he, he kept um, he kept the faith. Dependence, of course, how he did in the cups at the start of the eighty four season, you know, nineteen eighty four, and I say we got lucky at Oxford. But by February eighty four, you can see you can see the teams really taking teeth. You know, we played yeah. Villa, Villa Park in the second leg. We got beat one 0 but we you tell even by eight, February eighty four, Villa still half decent mid table team, but we were a cut above Villa, and then. Really the Mill Cup final '84, which is really instructive. I say we mentioned before the main road '77 against Liverpool. You only get one chance against Liverpool. Second game got overran. You can see what a good team we were by the spring of '84. That we played really well at Wembley, nil nil. Perhaps should have won. You're expecting then a average team or even a good team will then get beaten by Liverpool, who won three toes that season. But at main road, it was exactly the same. We stood toe to toe with Liverpool. I mean, yeah. they scored against. I, I, I've watched that entire game again. Liverpool mm-hmm. scored against the run of play in that game. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. were in charge for the first 20, 25 minutes before Sunet scored. So by then you can you can see you can see that there's a real team taking shape here. Yeah, there was the Goodison draw as well. You know, so yeah, yeah. You know, so it was Andy Gray flicked on an Aaron Harper. You know, so scored that wonderful volley after Sharp. He'd missed the penalty as well, hadn't he? So yeah. you know, so again, you know, a side that's showing character. Uh, as, as well as you know, so quality, and it, it, it was. I mean, to go back to the to Philip Carter thing, I mean, that uh, I don't recall you know, so Howard ever actually you know, so offering to resign that you know, surprised me a little bit. And uh, Sir Philip was absolutely adamant, you know, so no, 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 I'm not accepting that, not accepting it. Uh, and you know, so believed that he could turn things around. So you know, it's absolutely appropriate that you know, so both ends of the ground, you know, so have those two names, you know, so emblazoned across the stands because they are so indelibly linked really and yeah you know from such bleakness you know certainly you know sort of shoots of recovery could be seen in 84 and you could think well okay you know so things are starting to happen here and whilst you know winning the fa cup in 1984 still probably my favorite moment as an evertonian ever you know so more so than bayern munich uh you know i'd been to wembley three times that by that point nil nil in 77 nil nil in 84 and then to go and watch against Watford, and that was down the end. We were standing, you know, with Sharpie scored the goal. An experience like I'll never ever experience again in my life. Physical shiver went down my spine when that went in. It was just something else seeing an Everton player score at Wembley. And I've spoken to Sharpie about it, and uh, you know, so Sharpie feels the same. You know, despite everything he achieved as a footballer, that moment scoring in an FA Cup final at Wembley, you know, so for Everton, surpassed everything else. 
So, you know, that was an absolute incredible high. But none of us thought we were going to win the league the following year. There was no way, you know, we thought, you know, that that was going to happen, especially with the addition of just Paul Bracewell. I know Bandon Howe came in a little bit later. Uh, but, you know, no one knew anything about Paul Bracewell. He was just, you know, sort of a name that, you know, we'd like tentatively heard of. And even that, that season started, you know, so in quite fractured fashion, you know, getting battered by Spurs on the opening day and then losing at West Brom. And then a couple of other little you know, sort of ups and downs earlier on the season. So, it, it, it was, again, quite remarkable, you know, so how things suddenly clicked and suddenly just like went into overdrive from, you know, so maybe September onwards, probably from the Anfield Derby match win. And, you know, so from, from that moment, just some of the, the most thrilling moments I think I've ever experienced as an Evertonian. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I mean, Gav, I mean, it's it's great testament to both Howard Kendall as the manager and to all those players, like you say, that first of all, many of them progressed from the reserve team to the first team and then just the way they kicked on from, from 84 to 85 to becoming what is, uh, you know, undisputed, you know, the strongest side in, in, in the club's history and a, a team who achieved um, great things and would have probably gone on to, to do much more. Oh, that's a good question um, for another yeah. day. Um yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the, there's a couple of things to turn around. I would, I would both and now. I think I always get the impression really. I was those they ended up being good mates. I, I never got the impression that Howard trusted John Bailey at left back. I always felt he yeah. maybe not as tight mm. defensively as what he thought he should be. So Pat just looked like a proper defender, and um, he obviously brought his own type of menace to us. Yeah. <laughs> but, but. Very good footballer, Pat. Very, uh, I say in the book, Pat's, Pat to me has always been a centre half playing left back rather than a left back, you know. Um, a very good footballer. Um, I thought we then in just what we were really good at was that in 84 85, it was the it was the it was the midfield quartet that turned a very good team into an absolutely great team, you know. We had that perfect set of styles of um, she the uh craft and vision on the left and you know Reed and Bracewell who but very similar players really because <laughs> you don't want to get in midfield you know but yeah. that allowed them to how the pressing game that Howard and Colin wanted it was doubly effective because two players like Reed Bracewell could complement each other perfectly in that um that you know in that way. And then he had Sever with his own grace and style on the right. And it was a great partnership with Gary Stevens as well that he had, didn't he? You know, both both got up and down the pitch. And I say that, like a lot of good teams, there was a lot of good partnerships in that that, that team. Um, and you, you could see it, you know, that, that run of October, November 84, they were exceptional, played brilliant. Um, and then it, then Inchie gets injured and you think, oh, is this another false yeah. goal? And then Andy comes in, and I think Howard changes. I always think of 84, 85 as two separate seasons. With Inch in the team, I think we played one style. With Inch out the team, it was slightly more, uh, not, it was direct, but it wasn't long ball. And I think Howard also wants to like a good manager. I think before Christmas, we had conceded too many goals. I mean, we conceded four in the game four times, yeah. <laughs> like Christmas 84. Um, and I think he wanted to tighten up. And, uh, you know, away from home, we, we tended to keep it very tight uh, as a team, you know. Um, and we, I think we drag out victories away from home, really, to be honest with you. You know, how does it win away games? I, th- I think what surprised me as well, because obviously, you know, we, we looked at it at the time through, you know, Royal Blue Tinted Spectacles. You know, so we saw this, like, absolutely incredible football team producing, you know, feats of daring do, you know, so every, every week. And yet that wasn't the widely perceived feeling nationwide because, you know, this is a different era then. This is before, you know, live televised games. You know, they they were very much, you know, for internationals and cup finals, that was about it. And so, you know, people relied on uh, national newspapers, you know, so far more than maybe they do now. 
for their views on their football teams. And the Southern Press were very sniffy about us, you know. So they um, they had Tottenham in the title race that year, and they were probably, you know, so the the media darlings, if you like, uh, along with Manchester United and Liverpool, who all you know generally had been. Um, and so they, yeah, they were quite sniffy about everything. They've been the team with no stars, and you know, so we look back now and we see Sheedy, you know, so Stephen. Neville Southall in goal, you know, so Inchy, like you say. But, you know, to so the national media, we, we were starless, you know, so we were like more of a functional side. And that's astonishing, really. And it was only, you know, probably in that spring when we went to White Hart Lane and, and beat Spurs, you know, so really well. And what really surprised me is uh, where you talked about uh, match of the day. Match of the day cameras hadn't been to Goodison Park until that Sunderland game, you know, so that season. And, you know, so and then what a, what a game to choose. You know, they saw us absolutely turn on the style and score four absolutely stunning goals. And, uh, you know, again, underlined that how, you know, the media at large probably didn't give us the, the credit we deserved until we actually approved, you know, so what a great side we were. Yeah. And, um, Gav, obviously, um, the, uh, the, the league championships secured uh, the only um, European trophy in, in the club's history, but it could have been a, a, a glorious treble, but just one game too far for them in, in, in that respect with the, the, the FA Cup final at Wembley, Manchester United, an extra time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did say in the book, I always take down that whether flying back from Rotterdam to, uh, when, uh, to Liverpool on the night was the best thing, whether they should have stayed in Holland, gone straight down south for a start. It, it, it depends on a lot of it's like successes scheduling, you know. Um, we the only other teams who played the cup in this cup final and FA Cup final the same season was Arsenal, and they played the cup in, in eighty. They played the cup in this cup final after the FA Cup final. Right. So if that, if that had happened to us in eighty five, we would have had a, a complete week to the cup final, and then four days later gone to to Rotterdam. So in some respects, you are dictated by the by the fixture list. Same thing happened to Liverpool in 77. They played the FA Cup final at Wembley, played the European Cup final four days later. Um, so I think the, the Man United game was, you know, we were a victim of sort of the, the, the fixture list. I say it all that United were a, you seriously underestimate United, really good team. Atkinson was a, whatever you think of Big Ron, and I like Ron. Always good in big games, you know, one-off final, stuff like that. Yeah. Excellent record against Liverpool. And that was the, we played Man United a lot around that time. And that was the one game where they had Robson and Whiteside in the centre midfield against us. That was the only time we played against us, right. you know, with that season. And that, as a combination, they were both excellent players, obviously. And that made a, a big difference in terms of leading Bracewell, you know, in terms of their influence. And the Wembley pitch sort of nullified our wide players and their wide players. So, you know, Kano says about watching games. I, I, I've watched that 120 minutes of that, and I won't be getting that time back again. It was an absolutely <laughs> awful match. Which, to, to be fair, you do you do those tinted spectacles. Is the game is a lot better now? It's a lot you know, as, a, as a spectacle. You know, I'm not saying players better, but if you watch a lot of big games from 30, 40 years ago, but for long periods of time, nothing happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just it's just like a. a mishmash of like tackles and the ball being kicked from one end of the pitch to the other you know goalies whacking the ball under yards you know um so consequently you know if you watch a full game you, you, you're thinking this isn't very good even between two <laughs> top five teams you know because of, it's obviously a lot more physical you know yeah. for a start players got the same skill but because it's so much physical you know, for a long periods of time, when you watch it at a full 90 minutes of a game 40 years ago, you, you, what's happening here, you know? And that, that, the 85 final is a classic of that. Yeah. Um, I, I, United were a good team. I don't necessarily buy into the fact that obviously they played them four days later and these players were the one. I thought, I thought they were a really good team. You know, it would have been a lot, a lot closer. But, uh, but it, was a, it was a bad goal to concede as well, wasn't it, really? But we, we've got to talk about Rotterdam, haven't we, where we, you know, yeah. before then. We were superb. And we stormed to the title, Chris. You know, yeah. QPR is one of my favourite days. You know, um, winning first title 15 years. And I say, in, you know, that satisfaction that you knew how Liverpool were regarded as being the standard for everybody else. But yeah. now we were, the, we were the standard for everybody else. Yeah. And that was, that was a sweet feeling. And, and 
I, I love that. And Preno knows this, you know, they know this from being there. Is I love one of my favourite times Evertonian watching again is the post match after the BBQ PR, you know, where the players go around the pitch. Yeah. yeah. With the Cannon League trophy, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, awful. Um, <laughs> as I say, when I looked out of place in the backseat shops of Soho, that would it really, <laughs> like, when you look at it. And that was just magical. And as as I say, it's like, I hate, hate, uh, hate on the, you know, after game, you know, title celebrations now, because you've got like families and kids on the pitch and yeah. that's how it should be done properly. And they were great. Great days, and there was a, there was a great line from, I can't remember, I think it was John Roberts in the, in the Daily Mail, who could be quite, you know, quite good. He said that, um, you know, he was talking about Howard and how it changed, and he said like that, when Everton fans were saying at the end, there's only one Howard Kendall, well, that was one more than what they wanted to team before, exactly. which just shows you how things yeah. change with supporters. And I don't think Howard ever forgot that, by the way. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so yeah, so so they won the QPR. Coming this cup speaks for itself, doesn't it? By I me, mean, if we've spoken about it enough, um, we are quite clearly the best team in Europe, aren't we? By my eighty-five, when you look at look at the record, you know, I, I, I do that thing at the end, you know. So yeah. cup, yeah, this cup is is sometimes given a bit of stick, but you have a look at in the cup this cup in eighty-five, there's us. Bayern Munich won the Bundesliga. Roma played in the European Cup final year before against Liverpool. But Barcelona, which people forget, Teddy Venables won the league that season. They went out to Mets. Great. France probably 4-1 at home at the new Camp. And, you know, and when you look at the best teams in Europe, well, we were the best team in England. Well, Juventus won the European Cup. They finished sixth in Serie A. You know, Real Madrid finished fourth in La Liga, you know. We were clearly the best team in your um but was, well I don't end on the Man United game. I do a yeah. big with the back about how the eighty four eighty five campaign is should be well, is one of the most dominant campaigns of any English club in history. Yeah. It's 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 uh, just a couple of things. Forty three wins, which was the highest ever by an English team in a season, and that stood until two thousand and nine. When Man United beat it, you know, scored the goal that broke our record, Darren Gibson, the hull. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was one. The other one is, I'm trying to notice this, only twice in the 22 team top flight did a team beat all the other teams at least once during the season. And so that was from 1919 to 95. That only happened twice. Everton, 1969 70. Everton, 1984-85. Only two teams in top flight history with 22 clubs to beat everybody else in the league. And also as well, which I think I think is a really good one, it goes back to what we're saying, is there's only twice as an English club won two two. When it's, it's about doing the, the cup double, so the league mm-hmm. cup double in this country and a European trophy in the same season, only twice as an English club gone into a third game to win the third trophy. That was Man United in 99 when they yeah. won in Barcelona. And also in 1984, 85, you know, yeah. none, none of the other great teams of English football, Matt Busby, Bill Shankly, Don Levy Leeds, Bobby Robson, Ipswich, all the great Liverpool teams under Paisley, Pep's Man City, none of them have ever done that. It's only Ocean, Ferguson, United that have yeah. done it. And that just shows you. And that was before me really, you know, influenced football and had a major... Um, impact um that just shows you the historical context about how great the 84 85 season was in, in terms of one team being dominant of, of english football and, and 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 by extension i suppose european football and we should always uh we should always remember that you know and i end i end on that i still want to end on the 85 final chris you know yeah yeah uh, and and that was i mean that was just it was a lot more than just you know, a, a win, winning a title and winning two trophies, nearly winning a third, it, it has to be seen in that context of the history of English football, you know, absolutely yeah. fabulous campaign. 
I mean, it's, it's out now of the Coubertin, of course, but just before we, we do finish, um, Gavin, like we say, it's left us wanting more. Obviously, there's, that, um, there's still that, that 87 title winning team to be covered. So is that next? And, and, and like you say, the, I guess the big question is, is where do you, where do you finish that third um, book in this sort of series? This oh, trilogy? well, yeah. I don't know yet, Chris. <laughs> I've, I've been to in the 85. I've done a lot of that. I've done a couple of seasons or season so. Um, so you've got to, uh, I don't know yet. Yeah. That's 100, that book is 160,000 words. It's quite big for, for a book. And but the additional stuff was like hundred and eighty thousand. I had to take twenty thousand words out, you know, because it's just really? too heartbreaking. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you just see all this work disappearing down the down the tubes, you know. And it's very well, I know you you've done stuff like this when you have to delete stuff, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? You know, but um but yeah, um so yeah, well, we're well, finish, all I had to was the, uh, the, the the phrase I used to discuss the fellow who should not be named earlier. Refused to accept my initial description. Yeah, the publisher had to censor that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. We, 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 yeah. He said, 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 he Indeed. 73 to 85 really um and that that's a good thing is you know this book's got a happy ending yeah yeah, yeah. well yeah. We, we don't want to we don't want to end with with him so um like you say um what we what we will do is um we'll, we'll just let everybody know that obviously we've got this to listen to but um dave has got um, a review a full review of the uh the book will be appearing in the echo soon so we've got that to, to look forward to too haven't we dave we have yeah, been writing it this afternoon and uh, there's a few little nuggets come out of this conversation which I'll inc include in there as well. So uh, that'll be ready by tomorrow. So yeah, you can look out for that on the website. So yeah, thanks, excellent. For to, th thanks for both. Um, thanks Gavin for, for that and thanks um, Dave. Yeah, that's um, Boys from the Blue stuff and uh, it, it's out now. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.